0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We hope you all had a nice Halloween, and we are so happy you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link.
2: First link. link. From the BBC, this whopper of a lead. Pig vomit toxin key to Martian meteorite mystery. What? (laughs) (laughs) And believe it or not, this has the tag on the article from the BBC of Black History Month. Ready to dig in? What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. Let's take a little step (laughs) back here. So we're talking about something called the Lafayette meteorite. It was found in the drawer of an American university's biology department in like 1929, but nobody at the Purdue University in Indiana could remember where it came from. (laughs) There was, however, a bit of a theory suggesting that it was donated to them by a, quote, black student who witnessed it land in a pond while he was fishing. That's like the only provenance (laughs) origin story they have about this meteorite. (laughs) Well, over at the University of Glasgow, Dr. Anne O'Brien, an environmental and planetary organic geochemist, began her detective work two years ago, And it has now shed some light on who the black student might have been and when it was handed in. The reason the Lafayette meteorite is pretty rare is because it's a meteorite from Mars. And based on the way that it looks, it must have been picked up pretty soon after it dropped from the sky because otherwise the outer edge would have weathered away. So it's relatively intact on this meteorite. Most of it these days is kept at the National Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian Institution. So they gave her like a little chunk of it. She crushed it up and used sophisticated mass spectrometry to find out what it was made out of. And the point of this, the whole reason why she was doing it in the first place, was to look for preserved organic molecules or evidence which could help her learn more about the possibility of life on Mars. And so they analyzed this little chunk of ground up meteorite, and they had a long list of hundreds of different chemical compounds. And because, you know, by the time the data came in, it was late March 2020. And by her own admission, quote, I had nothing better to do than just scroll through the list. (laughs) So a lot of them had really long, boring chemistry data type names, but one was called a vomitoxin, which, quote, I thought sounded cool, so I started looking into it. (laughs) And she discovered that the vomitoxin, and I'm going to butcher the name, but it's something like deoxynivalenol, D-O-N, it was found in a fungus which contaminates grain crops like corn, wheat, and oats. So they turned to researchers at the university's botany and plant pathology departments to learn more about the historic prevalence of the fungus in Tippecanoe County in Indiana, which is where Purdue is located. So they went through these historical records. They showed that this fungus caused a marked drop in crop yield in 1919. Then another less pronounced drop in 1927, and the team suggested that dust from affected crops may have carried this DON chemical to surrounding waterways, and Lafayette may have been contaminated with it if it just fell in a pond. (laughs) And they did have some fireball sightings that were reported in 1919 and one in 1927. So archivists at Purdue then went through the yearbooks to find Black students enrolled at the time because reasons. There were vanishingly few of them, which actually narrowed (laughs) down who it might be, right? So they found three students, Julius Lee Morgan, Clinton Edward Shaw, and her man's Edwin Fauntleroy. And they were enrolled in Purdue during 1919. And they also found a fourth student named Clyde Silence, who had studied there in 1927. The years matched up. So they think one of these students may have found Lafayette. Like the previous origin story suggested. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's like you're doing murder forensics on this thing, except you're just finding what really cool student was into geology. Like, it's (laughs) awesome. Next link. Next
2: link.
1: link. This article comes to us from discovermagazine.com, and it's titled, Garlic May Have Saved Rasputin From Just One Assassination. (laughs) There were a few others. Right, right.
0: Multiple assassinations. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) So a few saw him as a healer. Many thought him to be dangerous. Almost all agreed he had terrible manners and foul odor. (laughs) As the spiritual advisor to Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra Fyodorovna, Rasputin had close access to the royal family. By the end of 1916, Rasputin's enemies wanted him dead. Though Rasputin had already survived an attack two years prior when a woman stabbed him in the chest, he seemed almost invincible on the night of his death. (laughs) Especially after his assassin slipped potassium cyanide into his wine and he didn't (gasps) keel over. For more than a century, historians have wondered, did he really survive the poisoning? Or was it just another rumor about Rasputin? On December 29th, 1916, Rasputin was invited to the home of Prince Felix Felixovich Yusupov, an (laughs) aristocrat, yeah, double Felix in there, (laughs) an aristocrat married to the Tsar's niece. Rasputin accepted wine and sweets offered to him and chatted while his killers waited and waited for him to succumb to the poison. The cyanide seemed to have no impact, so the killers (laughs) moved to plan B, shooting him. Rasputin's daughter always claimed her father wasn't poisoned because he wasn't fond of sweets and would have rejected the offering. However, mm. she was a biased source and claimed in her writings that her father had healing powers from a young age, including the ability to communicate with farm animals. Mm. Oh, okay. Historians have long debated whether Rasputin maintained his peasant influenced diet once he became a regular at the palace. Some have argued that the rumors that he turned to caviar and fine champagne were wrong, and Rasputin actually maintained a simple diet of bread and fish seasoned with garlic. A June 2022 letter to the editor in Chemical Research and Toxicology suggested that Rasputin might have had a diet heavy in garlic which could have protected him from the cyanide. Researchers took 40 poor rats and divided (laughs) them into four groups. The first group of 10 served as a control group and did not ingest any garlic powder. The second group had a diet of 10% garlic powder. The third group was at 20%, and the last group was at 30%. The researchers next, as they put it, challenged the rats (laughs) with 10 milligrams (laughs) per kilo uh, of cyanide. For the control group, half of the rats were indeed challenged by the cyanide. (laughs) But the number of rats affected decreased as the percentage of garlic powder increased. While the 10% group lost four of their rat comrades, only one from the 30% group perished. The Mm. authors concluded that sulfur compounds in garlic likely combated the cyanide. Mm. Garlic has also been noted to be helpful to rabbits exposed to nitrate toxicity. Rasputin's hold on the royal family lasted through their demise. Just months after Rasputin's murder, Tsar Nicholas was forced to abdicate the throne. The family was put under house arrest and eventually executed in July 1918. The new government quashed discussion and documentation of the royal family and their controversial advisor. Rasputin's daughter and other supporters described him as a pious holy man, but his enemies called him a boorish womanizer with foul habits. (laughs) Rasputin was illiterate until his teen years, and his handwriting reflected his limited education. He didn't keep a diary, and he never wrote a memoir, which means his story will always be told by others.
0: Hmm. But it's good to know, if anyone's trying to poison you with cyanide, that eating a bunch of garlic could help.
1: Yeah, (laughs) but watch out for that plan B of guns, too.
2: (laughs) Right, right. The garlic does nothing to prevent that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you gotta fake it. Just take a nap, let them be none the wiser, and then peace out. There you go. Next link. Next Next link.
0: link. Well, next up we've got a short but heartwarming little piece from Daily called Astonishing experiment shows bumblebees play with objects. Oh <gasps> Yeah. This is according to new research published in the journal Animal Behavior, and they say it's the first time that object play behavior has been shown in an insect and may even be evidence that bees experience, quote-unquote, feelings. Paul, To be honest, they've done their due diligence here, because it was actually a whole series of experiments run by scientists at Queen Mary University of London, First, they created a sort of enclosed double path situation where the bees could choose between two chambers in order to get to their feeding area. One path was clear, but the other contained a bunch of brightly colored wooden balls, basically children's necklace beads. And instead of going straight to the food, most of the bees took a detour and rolled the balls around for a bit anywhere from (laughs) one to 117 times. Of course, you would hope there'd be a video and there is. It's pretty cute. You know, he's not exactly playing soccer with the thing, but he's definitely kind of fumbling around with it, rolling around on his back and like really sticking with the task. Like he's determined, if nothing else. (laughs) And the researchers noted that younger bees rolled more balls than older bees and male bees rolled more than females, both of which line up with other species as far as how much playtime they usually engage in.
2: Hmm. And,
0: you know, I'll be honest, at this point in the article, I was like, okay, maybe. But also, the video kind of looks like he's just struggling to get on top of the ball. And (laughs) and my cynical mind was like, he probably just thinks it's a brightly colored flower. You know, that's where the best pollen is. And the young bees just have more stamina to keep trying to get on top of it because they're not broken inside yet. But (laughs) (laughs) then they did a second experiment where they colored the chambers themselves And then took all the balls out and showed that the bees still had a lasting preference for the chamber that had previously been associated with the balls. And in fact, this whole line of inquiry was inspired by an earlier experiment where they actually trained bees to roll the balls into a goal. And (gasps) it was at that point that they noticed the bees would keep playing with the balls on their own, even when the goal and the food rewards were gone. So, you know, obviously the message here is that bees are more complex than we thought. And if they can, in fact, feel joy as this research suggests, then frankly, they might be even more sophisticated than some humans. You know, bees are special.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. We are not done talking about bees because oh. life science has a more sinister look at our little winged friends. Apparently, swarming bees may potentially change the weather. Oh. The finding, which researchers made by measuring the electrical fields around honeybees, and this is so mind-blowing to me, but insects' tiny bodies, they can pick up positive charge while they forage, either from the friction of air molecules against their rapidly beating wings, and listen, honeybees can flap their wings more than 230 times a second, Hmm. or they can also pick up a positive charge by landing onto electrically charged surfaces. So static electricity first emerges when the microscopic bumps and pits on two surfaces rub over each other, which causes friction. And the friction causes electrons, which are negatively charged, to jump from one surface to another, leaving one surface positively charged while the other surface becomes negatively charged. This type of gradient can also charge lightning through the friction of ice clumps inside clouds. And we know that electrostatic effects emerge through the insect world, right? They enable bees to draw pollen to them. Hmm. Electrostatic stuff just helps spiders spin negatively charged webs that can help to further attract and ensnare the positively charged bodies of their prey. I didn't know that static electricity played a part in it, but it kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. So, to test whether honeybees produce sizable changes in the electric field of our atmosphere, <laughs> researchers placed an electric field monitor and a camera near the site of several honeybee colonies. And in the three minutes that the insects flooded into the air, the researchers found that the potential gradient above the hives increased to 100 volts per meter. And in other swarming events, scientists measured the effect as high as thousand volts per meter, making the charge density of a large honeybee swarm roughly six times greater than electrified dust storms and eight times greater than a storm cloud. Wow. So if you walked into
0: a swarm of honeybees, could you get a static shock like you do off a doorknob? It just what? that seems so scary. Like, first of all, you're being swarmed by bees, which is scary. Mm-hmm. Second of all, you're getting electrocuted. <laughs>
2: like, that's not cool. Yeah. I mean, I would be so curious to know what beekeepers who have probably been in the midst of swarms, like whether they have that feeling, like do the hairs on their arms start mm-hmm. to stick up and stuff, but. To wrap this up, the scientists did find that denser insect clouds mean bigger electrical fields, which is an observation that enables them to model other swarming insects like locusts. Mm. And that's because, you know, locusts will often swarm to what are known as biblical scales, (laughs) thick, thick clouds, like up to 460 square miles in size. Mm -hmm. The researchers model predicted that swarming locust effect on the atmospheric electrical field was staggering, generating densities of electric charge, similar to those made by thunderstorms. So researchers say it's unlikely insects are producing storms themselves. But even when potential gradients don't meet the conditions to make lightning, they can still have other effects on the weather, like ionizing particles of dust or pollutants, which can change their movement in Mm -hmm. different ways. And because dust can scatter sunlight, knowing how it moves and where it settles is also really important to understanding a region's climate. So. A lot of stuff to unpack here, but for me, the biggest takeaway is we got to find a way to harness this because that would be such an amazing superpower.
0: Oh, yeah. No, the day the insects figure out how to shoot us with lightning, we're in trouble. (laughs)
2: Like, that's a weapon. (laughs) They're going to absolutely fight back. Ride the lightning, little bee. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link.
1: Well, speaking of weapons, this article comes to us from TheGuardian.com. It's titled, Cuban Missile Crisis, 60 Years On. Hmm. New papers reveal how close the world came to nuclear disaster.
0: Oh, yikes. Oh, very close, I imagine.
1: Extremely. (laughs) (laughs) So, the commander of a nuclear-armed Soviet submarine panicked and came close to launching a nuclear torpedo during the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago after being blinded and disoriented by aggressive U.S. tactics, according to newly translated documents. Mm. Many nuclear historians agree that October 27, 1962, known as Black Saturday, was the closest the world came to nuclear catastrophe, as U.S. forces enforced a blockade of Cuba to stop deliveries of Soviet missiles. The most perilous moment came when one of those submarines, B-59, was forced to surface late at night in the Sargasso Sea to recharge its batteries and found itself surrounded by U.S. destroyers and anti-submarine planes circling overhead. In a newly translated account, one of the senior officers on board, Captain 2nd Class Vasily Arkhipov, said one of the U.S. planes turned on powerful searchlights and blinded the people on the bridge so that their eyes hurt. The commander panicked, calling for an urgent dive and for the number one torpedo with a nuclear warhead to be prepared. However, because the signaling officer was in the way, Savitsky could not immediately get down the narrow stairway through the conning tower. And during those few moments of hesitation, Arkhipov realized that the U.S. forces were signaling rather than attacking and deliberately firing off to the side of the submarine. He called to Savitsky and said, Calm down. Look, they are signaling, not attacking. Let's signal back. Savitsky turned back, saw the situation, ordered the signaling officer to signal back. Tom Blanton, the director of the National Security Archives, said the aggressive tactics used by the American submarine hunters contributed to the close shave. At a conference in Havana in 2002, John Peterson, a lieutenant on the USS Beale, the destroyer closest to the Russian submarine, said he and his crew resented their orders to use only practice depth charges, which just made a loud bang. So they stuffed hand grenades into toilet roll tubes, which oh. would hold the pin down for a couple of hundred meters before disintegrating, causing the grenade to explode next to the submarine's hull.
2: Yikes. Oh. That is such yeah. a weird yet creative application of like the cartoon dynamite, where you right, light the fuse right. and it takes time, except this time it's toilet paper that dissolves in water and then boom. Oh my
1: goodness. Yeah. The B-59 incident was just one of a cascade of crises that day. A U-2 went missing over Siberia and the pilot lost his bearings, blinded by the Aurora Borealis and misled by compass malfunction close to the North Pole. Some F-102 interceptor jets were scrambled to protect the U-2, but the Joint Chiefs of Staff who gave the order for their launch were not aware they had been armed with nuclear missiles as a matter of course once the alert level was raised to DEFCON 2. Minutes later, the Joint Chiefs heard that another U-2 had been shot down over Cuba and assumed it was a deliberate escalation by Moscow. The Joint Chiefs were also unaware that there were 80 nuclear warheads on the missiles already in Cuba when they gave their recommendation for the U.S. to carry out airstrikes and then an invasion of Cuba. The recommendation was overruled by President John Kennedy as negotiations with Soviet representatives, some of them in a Washington Chinese restaurant, were making progress, leading ultimately to the withdrawal of Soviet missiles from Cuba while U.S. missiles were pulled back from Turkey. Kalina said the danger of disaster would remain as long as nuclear weapons were part of the military equation.
0: Mm -hmm. But you know, how are you going to get rid of all the nukes? Like, no one's ever going to really agree to that. It's going to be this eternal standoff of like, well, you go first. And then what if they say they got rid of them, but they kept a few on the side? We better do the same. Like, I don't know. People are fallible, but they're also jerks. Like,
2: I think we have to like turn the worst of human behavior towards the situation to resolve it. Like, we need to get space travel a little bit better so that we're able to have interstellar nuclear war battles that are purely (laughs) for entertainment. You know, like I'm thinking like American Gladiator except its galactic gladiator and you've got these mines that are actually nuclear. But I'm just saying, you know, we can go out of the box with this one. Well, yeah, I mean, and also if you have a chance to
0: routinely see the level of destruction, it's sort of as a reminder of like, oh, hey, we really don't want to do this on Earth. Mm -hmm. You know, get it done out in space where everyone can, <laughs> where we can't see it and it doesn't bother us as much. Right, but we can learn from it. Like, you know, sacrifice mercury. No one needs that one. You know? Like oh,
2: fighting words. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link.
0: link. All right. Well, some very disturbing news out of neurosciencenews.com. Nose picking could increase risk for Alzheimer's and dementia. Oh my. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So First, we'll start with what we knew going into this, which is that one of the hallmark early symptoms of Alzheimer's and dementia is a loss of smell. And they've sort of always assumed, Mm. well, this is probably due to damage to the olfactory neurons in the brain. But Professor James St. John, head of the Clem Jones Center for Neurobiology and Stem Cell Research, said, what if it doesn't actually have to do with the brain, but with the olfactory nerve leading into the brain? Because the olfactory nerve is a little bit special, as it turns out. Things like our optic nerve, our hypoglossal nerve, these are all sort of buried within our bodies behind or underneath the organs they control. But the olfactory nerve goes right up to the interior surface of our nose and is directly exposed to air. What's more, as it heads back up to the brain to deliver its signals, the olfactory nerve passes through the blood-brain barrier, which is what generally prevents toxins and pathogens from getting straight into our most important tissues. So this is why, for example, if you've ever heard the horror stories of brain-eating amoebas that people can catch (gasps) while swimming, the whole reason these amoebas are able to get into your brain is that they travel up the olfactory nerve. The exposure is through your nose. Rude! So St. John and his team were looking at other pathogens that can potentially do the same thing, including chlamydia pneumoniae. And they found that when mice were exposed nasally to this bacteria, Their brains responded by depositing amyloid beta protein, which is a hallmark symptom of Alzheimer's disease. They basically gave the mice Alzheimer's, which they were not expecting to do. Yeah. And the really scary thing is that St. John says these bacteria are present in small quantities in pretty much all humans, the same way we all have a little bit of E. coli on our skin. Like it's an opportunistic situation. It doesn't explode into a full-blown infection Unless we have a weakened immune system or perhaps we have a cut on our skin that allows the bacteria a quick way in. And so that is why St. John says that picking your nose or plucking nose hairs or blowing your nose so hard you get a nosebleed. Any sort of damage to the nasal tissue creates an easier path for the chlamydia pneumonia to get into your olfactory nerve and go straight to your brain. It also, on the upside, potentially means that antibiotics could treat Alzheimer's. But only if we could figure out a direct application, because antibiotics in your bloodstream generally don't pass the blood-brain barrier. So you'd have to have like an antibiotic nose spray or something. Mm -hmm. And of course, you'd have to find an antibiotic that affects this chlamydia pneumonia, which is apparently a pretty hardy bacteria. You know, the team is already planning the next phase of research in order to prove that the same reaction exists in humans. And obviously, there are ethical concerns with directly infecting people. So they're probably going to have to do some autopsies on Alzheimer's patients who have passed away if they want to prove this bacteria is present in their brains. But if they find it. It could change everything. I mean, this is a huge breakthrough on the origins of Alzheimer's. Hmm. And also, don't pick your nose because it's gross. (laughs) (laughs) It could kill you, but also just don't do it.
2: (laughs) It's it's like the actual data backed. Don't cross your eyes or it'll stay that way. But Mm. for nose picking. Mom was right all along. (laughs) Next link. Next link. link. Okay, we talked about some pretty spooky stuff on the podcast today and in lots of our other podcasts as well. But listen, it's all for your own good, because (laughs) Smithsonian Magazine agrees with us, it may provide psychological benefits. So- Hmm. You're welcome. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're providing a service. Thank you. <laughs> exactly right. So, this is a pretty remarkable article in that it's written by Matthias Klassen, someone who established something called the Recreational Fear Lab, which is a mm-hmm. research study at Aarhus University in Denmark. And they do lab studies, survey studies, and real world empirical studies to understand the widespread but scientifically understudied psychological phenomenon of. Fear and recreational fear in particular. Because hmm. a lot of us really enjoy being scared to a degree. Right. right? <laughs> and once you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere. Like, even early forms of peekaboo, you know, I'm, I'm here and I'm not, that's a little bit heart-stopping for an infant or mm-hmm. maybe being like thrown up into the air and then caught safely. Because when we play, we learn important skills and develop survival strategies, right? Play-fighting kittens train their ability to hold their own in a hostile encounter. And just like us humans, when we play, we learn important things about the physical, the social world, and about our own psychological responses to stress. So now let's turn to this recreational fear lab. Where's the data? Well, in one ambitious research project, they set out to investigate the experiences of guests at a very frightening haunted house, dystopia haunted house in Denmark. (laughs) And what they did, which sounds so fun, they mounted surveillance cameras in the house's scariest rooms. They strapped participants with heart rate monitors and distributed a ton of questionnaires. (laughs) And the surveillance footage allowed them to see how guests responded to frightening events like a chainsaw-wielding pig man chasing them down a dark corridor. You know, normal haunted Mm -hmm. house stuff. And the heart monitors told them about their physiological responses to such events. And then the questionnaires allowed us to understand how they you know, felt about it all. But they also wanted to go deeper into the relationship between fear and enjoyment because we might be tempted to think of that relationship as linear, right? More equals better. But mm, when it comes to fear, (laughs) not so much. It looks more like an upside down you, right? So when you go to a haunted house, you don't want too little fear, because that's boring. But you also don't want too much fear, because that's just unpleasant. And that's not just for high intensity haunted attractions either. Like when you're throwing a kid in the air, you don't want it to be too tame, but you also don't want it to be too wild. Like, you don't want them You're to traumatizing to them. Exactly. Right? Yeah, but you also don't want them to be like, this is dumb or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or, so the pleasure part of this, well, in several past and ongoing studies, these researchers have seen it improve people's ability to cope with stress and anxiety. For instance, in one study, they found that people who watched many horror movies exhibited better psychological resilience. During the first COVID lockdown, and Mm. they know from another dystopia haunted house study that people actively use a range of coping strategies to regulate their fear levels in pursuit of the sweet spot. And it makes sense, right? We get better at using those strategies through practice. So think of recreational fear more like a mental jungle gym where you can prepare yourself the real thing, especially for people with some mental health issues like anxiety disorder and depression. You may want to pursue recreational horror or fear as a way to kind of build this tolerance and resilience. But for fear to be fun, you need to feel not only that the levels are just right, but that you are in relative control of the experience. Like for me, I need to watch scary movies during the day and with the mute button nearby. <laughs> if it becomes too much for me, you know, I will peace out. I'm definitely a coward with these kinds of things, but I'm, I'm trying more.
0: Yeah, I've always found horror movies... To be fine, like jump scares and things don't bother me at all. But the gore is something I avoid very heavily.
2: Interesting. I am your polar opposite. Give me all the body horror. But the minute a jump scare comes in and tries that cheap trick, I'm out. You know, and I just went
0: through a haunted house recently just a couple weeks ago. And I found it very interesting because I hadn't gone through one since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I didn't find it scary at all. Really? (laughs) And part of that is because aside from the whole, like, I know it's fake, there's an added layer of I know the actors can't touch me, like, legally. There is a barrier that I know I'm safe. <laughs> so possibly if I went to one of those ones that's a little more advanced that they're, they're like, oh, no, they can grab you and you better be prepared for it. And you got to sign a waiver <laughs> like you wouldn't no, believe.
2: No, but thanks. yeah,
0: I wouldn't want one of those.
2: <laughs> well, you, and if you're immune to jump scares, I think haunted houses that cannot legally right. touch you. That's pretty much their bread and butter. Right. I love, however, Watching videos of people go through haunted houses when they do enjoy it because that <laughs> is
0: delightful. Right. You, well, you're exercising that Schadenfreude muscle so that when <laughs> you
2: watch bad things
0: happen to other people, you can laugh uh, them too. <laughs> yeah, that muscle is
1: overworked.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link.
1: This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com and it's titled Mondrian Painting Has Been Hanging Upside Down for 75 Years. <laughs>
2: Wait, Mondrian, he does all the lines, right? Like the hash Mm -hmm. marks? Yeah, like squares. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, understandable, to be fair. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, how
0: are you supposed to know? Like that, I get it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So a painting by abstract Dutch artist Piet Mondrian has been hanging upside down in various museums since it was first put on display 75 years ago, an art historian has found but warned it could disintegrate if it was hung the right side up now. (laughs) What? Yeah, so we're kind of stuck with it. (laughs) The 1941 picture, a complex interlacing lattice of red, yellow, black, and blue adhesive tapes titled New York City One, was first put on display at New York's MoMA in 1945, but was hung at the art collection of the German federal state of North Rhine, Westphalia, in Dusseldorf since 1980. The way the picture is currently hung shows the multicolored lines thickening at the bottom, suggesting an extremely simplified version of a skyline. However, when curator Suzanne Meyer-Buser started researching the museum's new show on the Dutch avant-garde artist earlier this year, she realized the picture should be the other way around. She said, The thickening of the grid should be at the top, like a dark sky. Once I pointed it out to the other curators, we realized it was very obvious. I am 100% certain the picture is the wrong way around.
0: (gasps) Wait, so but this is just her gut feeling on what it ought to look like. There's no like evidence that he painted it or whatever, taped it a different direction.
1: So there there are some other indications, but, you know, I'll stop to say that it is kind of funny that in the actual article, you can see they've done this little photo slider thing where you can slide it back and forth between the wrong version and the right version. And, you know, (laughs) I kind of see it like I do like the piece better right side up, apparently, because (laughs) I don't know, just, you know, it's a very subjective thing. But you look at it and the tension feels very different, Mm. like the way it's distributed, like. It just feels very bottom heavy in the first version in a way where it doesn't feel overly top heavy in the second version. Now, that being said, I did take three years of an art school and did not graduate. So (laughs) I'm full of something. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think there's there's something to it. So, indicators suggesting an incorrect hanging arm multifold, the similarly named and same-sized oil painting, New York City, which is on display in Paris at the center Pompidou, has the thickening of lines at the top as well. Hmm. A photograph of Mondrian's studio, taken a few days after the artist's death and published in American Lifestyle magazine Town & Country in June 1944, also shows the same picture sitting on an easel the other way up.
0: Okay. Meyer
1: Busser said it was <laughs> yeah. Meyer Buser said it was likely that Mondrian worked by starting his intricate layering with a line right at the top of the frame and then worked his way down, which would also explain why some of the yellow lines stop a few millimeters short of the bottom edge. The curator said, was it a mistake when someone removed the work from its box? Was someone being sloppy when the work was in transit? It's impossible to say. (laughs) In spite of all the evidence pointing to the work being currently displayed upside down, the work will be shown the way it was hung for 75 years in the new Mondrian.Evolution show that opens in Dusseldorf on Saturday. Meyer Bruser said, the adhesive tapes are already extremely loose and hanging by a thread. If you were to turn it upside down now, gravity would pull it into another direction. And now it's part of the work's story. Hmm.
0: I mean, they could at least take a picture and put a scan next to it of what it should look like. And yeah. then you can compare them. Because otherwise you're going to have a bunch of museum goers trying to like twist their heads around and see it the other way. It just Well, I
1: was kind of chuckling, imagining that, you know, just a bunch of curators just sticking their heads between their legs to look right. at it upside down. And they're like, huh. All <laughs> oh, their glasses are falling off and their hair is upside down and stuff.
0: I think to a certain degree, the the viewer gets a say. You know, it's like the art is what everybody wants it to be, because I have, I'll admit, a giant abstract painting in my bedroom that I know for a fact was painted and displayed and sold with a specific picture. And when I got it, I was like, no, I want it rotated (laughs) 90 degrees to the right. Yeah, that's how we hung it. I'm like, this is how I want it in my room because I like this look better. And I think I get to make that decision. I, don't I mean, be the, the
2: artist. fact that we're even still talking about stationary art feels so tired, wired. Mm. We need to be mounting all of these on perpetually rotating frames. Okay. There you go. One day, I'm going to have my own Mondrian, and I'm going to install
1: it on a clock. It'll just rotate <laughs> go. slowly throughout the day. Bingo. Tell me the time. Next link. Next, Next link. link.
0: All right. Well, we have a quickie here at the end from mymodernmet.com, and it's called Rare T. Rex skeleton expected to sell for over 25 million at Christie's auction. Wow! And it makes sense, you know, museums have to acquire their specimens somehow. But it still seems really funny to me to imagine a bunch of people
2: bidding on a dinosaur Mm -hmm. skeleton.
0: Like, what if in the future someone's bidding on one of our skeletons?
2: That's just so. (laughs) I mean, only if we go for bottom dollar. If I fetch a nice price, I might be okay with that because I'll be dead.
0: Yeah, for 25 million, that you know, that's that's (laughs) respectable. So this is actually the third T-Rex to go up for auction, starting with a T-Rex named Sue in 1997 and another one named Stan just recently in 2020. They don't have any information in the article about what happened to Sue, but Stan was apparently sold for $31.8 million and will soon be on display at a new natural history museum in Abu Dhabi. And these T-Rex skeletons do apparently justify the price tag because scientists believe that only one out of 80 million T-Rexes were fully preserved in entirety. The newest specimen was uncovered on private land in Montana in 2020. And it's named Shen, which means godlike. And I guess the person who owns the private land gets this money. I mean, there's certainly some money that was invested in digging it out. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine they're going to get all of it. But it'd be a pretty nice thing to discover on your otherwise arid land in Montana. (laughs) Yeah. So Shen is 16 feet tall and 43 feet long. Scientists believe it is a male. The auction is taking place in Hong Kong, perhaps because the auction house suspects that the skeleton will ultimately end up in Asia. Hmm. Currently, most T-Rex skeletons are located in natural history museums in North America and Europe, and they think the demand is going to be higher in places that haven't acquired one yet.
2: I think that's super fair. Let Asia have a T Rex skeleton. Dang, for y'all. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: they don't really say why they think Shen will only fetch 25 million when Stan got 31.8. But I think they're <laughs> underestimating him. Like, I'm rooting for Shen to break the record. I think he can do it.
2: I think so, too. I mean, we're in a very uncertain market. So who knows? The T Rex index may uh, <laughs> help other people right. guide their financial <laughs> decisions. <laughs> Invest in T
0: Rex futures. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include It's Got Nasty, The Battle to Build the U.S.'s Biggest Solar Power Farm, Expedition Finds Cache of Cameras 85 Years After Mountaineer Left Them Behind, and We Thought These Animals Were Silent, Scientists Just Found Their Voices. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damn In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye bye.